everybody this is Georgianne Hughes and this is the bite show and we are blessed with a part two of dirty secrets 7b 
<laughs> and uh, by golly, Joseph Farrell is uh, there. Just there just is no researcher like Joseph Farrell. Um, and these books that Joseph Joseph has have written, um, you have in order to get all these dots connected. It is important to read them in the order in which they were written. And, for example, if you get uh, Babylon's Banksters, uh, you won't understand how this all came about unless you go back and get the background for all of this. Um, you know, the first here, we've got the Giza Death Star. Um, that was published in the spring of 2002. We've got the Giza Death Star Deployed. That came out in spring of 2003. Uh, Giza, the Giza Death Star Destroyed, that came out in 2005. And we've got the Nazi, uh, you know, there's two books that Joseph has uh, published on the Nazi secret weapons. And one is Reich of the Black Sun and SS Brotherhood of the Bell. And you know, then you've got the cosmic war, and you, you you just have to read these in the order in which they were written. And after the cosmic war came secrets of the unified field, and then we've got Nazi International, and that's what we've been talking about tonight. Then you've got the Philosopher's Stone. All these different books weave. A story that is so Joseph. I mean, it is just so huge. It is. Yeah, you, you couldn't put all this in one book. Well, I have to. I have to add one thing to what you've just said, and I thank you for uh, making it clear to people. It's important to read all the books. It isn't. I wrote the, each book so that they can kind of stand on their own. I think that you can yeah. actually pick up any one of them and read it and and kind of get what's going on. Uh, obviously, the three pyramid books were conceived as a series, but in fact, the whole series of books was conceived as a series and written in a particular order. Yeah. Um, I'm always about four or five books ahead of what I'm actually, you know, have published. Oh, and, and, yeah. And, wait till people hear what comes next. Oh yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's already proving to be. <laughs> yes. It's keeping me up nights just writing it, you know, because yeah. I'm so locked into the story. But um, the the books, like you say, they it's important to read all of them. Uh, and and reading them in the order that I wrote them, since yes. I did have a preconceived order in mind, is probably the best way. But uh, if you don't read them that way, then then certainly make sure you do read all of them because you will miss the dots that are connected. Yes. And it's very interesting that the order that I originally wrote was two the first two Giza books, and then I wrote Rack of the Black Sun. Yeah. And then I returned to Giza, and people have always kind of wondered, well, why in the name of sense is he doing that? <laughs> and and the reason why is, friends, is that the real story of what I'm writing about is not just the people involved with this, it's the science that they're involved with. Yes. Uh, it's the physics that they're involved with. Uh, that's really the story of all of these books, is, is this tremendously powerful physics and the people trying to get their hands on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's truly an incredible story, like you say. It's a big story. Yes. 
And if you know, if I'd written one book, no one wants to read a book two thousand pages long. You know, so <laughs> it, it's easier to break it up. It's easier on me for one thing. <laughs> I understand. Well, Joseph, now we've got the Nazis. And yes. Unfortunately, we do. <laughs> yeah, and they're still very alive and uh, oh, yeah, well. absolutely. And very active all yes. over the planet. Yes. Um, we have got uh, missing, huge amounts of missing money. Yes. Missing gold. Um, missing uh, large uh, silver uh, deposits mm -hmm. that are missing. Mm -hmm. We've got... Uh, we've got... Um, Missing scientists. Yeah, you took my words. Yes, um, and missing people. Missing people. Yeah, uh, children. Children. Uh, yes. You know, and you and I have talked privately about: Are they taking this stuff off planet? Right. Right. Um, they, you know, I've heard one night a long time ago when Art Bell still uh, had the show at right. night. He had a guest on there that made the remark that, oh, <laughs> we can go to the moon and back for lunch. Yes. With a kind of uh, craft. Okay. Mm hmm Then we've got these wonderful uh, things that have come out that from Richard Hoagland. Right. Um, and photographs and things like this and yes. research that Hoagland has done. Um I'm still doing, I can assure you. Oh, yes. Oh, God bless him. <laughs> Just talk to him tonight. <laughs> oh, bless his heart. Um, you know, there is something going on off planet. Oh, yes, absolutely. And there, I believe the moon has been used in the past as a base. Oh, sure, yeah. And probably is being used It's in current use. Possibly. Yeah, let's say possibly. And there's a, there's a lot of reason to believe that there there are, or there is somebody is on Mars. Yes. Because there's very strange things going on there. Uh -huh, possibly. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh <-huh. laughs> a little little machine going around with dirty mirrors. Yes. <laughs> dirty windows. <laughs> that aren't, they're suddenly not dirty anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, who got out the Windex? Yeah, who got out the Windex? <laughs> very good question. <laughs> they're still scratching their heads up about, about that one at NASA. <laughs> yeah, well, somebody has to be there to do that. Yeah. So... With all this technology, and I go back to something that is written in the in the Old Testament, Joseph, and mm -hmm. we've touched on it before, mm -hmm. where, and I, I have to paraphrase, my head is just racing right now. Um, the king is angry, and uh, he makes away many. Mm -hmm. Well... You can peel all that verbiage way, way down, and it's kind of like he vibrates away mm -hmm. many. Mm -hmm. In other words, makes some people uh, disappear mm -hmm. with some kind of technology. Mm -hmm. um, is that possible? Well, yes. Um, there is all matter in our universe exists in a certain phase, okay? Yes. Yeah. Um, if you can imagine things being 90 degree out of phase, we would not be able to see them. 
they would still exist, but they would exist in a different kind of uh, four-dimensional space-time. Now, okay. could this be sort of like that Philadelphia experiment? Oh, sure, yes. Okay. That's exactly what's going on. Um, yeah. Uh, and that's what's going on with the bell. That's what's going on in a natural process in the sun, in fact, in any star, because what are they? They're, they're big, huge, rotating balls of what? Plasma. Yes. And according to the standard thermonuclear model of what is going on in stars, there should be a certain amount, you know, if you follow the theory of general relativity, it leads to these models. Uh, there should be a certain amount of neutrinos being kicked out, and in fact other radiation being kicked out from stars. Yeah. Well, the fact of the matter is they're not kicking out enough of that stuff for the thermonuclear model to be all that's going on in stars. Stars appear, if you take the, the hyperdimensional physical model, torsion physics or whatever you want to call it, stars appear to be gating energy from higher dimensions into this dimension. Okay, so in other words, when when we talked in the previous uh, section about Richter and his rotating plasma, right. what they're, what these Nazi scientists were very early on to was, you know, having thrown away Jewish physics and hence general relativity, they probably came across the, this very same phenomena about stars and decided, hey, you know, we can engineer this stuff, <laughs> and you know, the Soviets. We're doing similar work in the Soviet Union under uh, Dr. Kozarev after the war. So in other words, it's not anything that scientists have not been aware of. It's just been kept carefully hidden from the public view, from the public consumption physics. So yeah, in a certain sense, in a theoretical sense, I think yeah, you could say that maybe this stuff is being vibrated into a different phase uh, of existence, but it's still... Don't get me wrong here. That doesn't mean it ceases being physical. It's very physical. Yes, yes. It's just in a very different phase. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's like at 90 degree angles from it, so to speak. So, yeah, uh, possible, yes. It, are, are there, you know, to extend your question, are there bases on the moon? Are there bases on Mars? Well, if we, if we look at the fact that we have especially in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, especially in Great Britain, since the 1950s, this interest in anti-gravity research that I believe, and I accept uh, wholeheartedly Nick Cook's idea here, that when he saw the anti-gravity topic disappear from open literature in the mid-50s, the reason why is it went deeply black. And incidentally, a similar phenomenon happened in France. So you've got at least three countries in the world that are technologically sophisticated, that are certainly not any by any stretch of the imagination engineering slouches, yeah. uh, that have probably been pursuing this stuff in their own black projects for that time. Certainly with Dr. Kozarev and some of the stuff that he was doing in the Soviet Union that only we learned about after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, you know, take even what we know about this research with a grain of salt. Probably the Russians have advanced it to a much, much greater degree. Uh, so you've got to include the Russians in this, this space, this secret space race. 
And then, of course, if you accept my thesis that I've been arguing that there is an independent uh, Nazi extraterritorial power that has been pursuing this research as it definitely was in the case of Richter in Argentina. Yeah. And with the disappearance of his project, what I'm saying is, you know, they simply moved it elsewhere, God knows where. So you've got to factor in that there's an independent group, at least one, there are probably others, but at least one that has a track record of being really nasty yeah. that's probably been developing this stuff too since the end of World War II. So, you know, let's look at what we accomplished with the Manhattan Project in this country. Okay. It took us, you know, from the time that Roosevelt first set up his, you know, uranium club in 1941, it took us four years to go from pure theory to workable atom bombs. Four years. The um, Yeah, it is. When you stop and consider the amount of engineering yes. that had to go into making that possible. Well, they didn't learn that kind of engineering from high school physics either. No, of course not. Of course not. Yeah. Many, Most of those scientists at the very top of, of the Manhattan Project, of course, were trained in Europe. Yes. Uh, yeah. Oppenheimer, in fact, was trained in Germany. Right. Uh, Leo Schillard and, and uh, Teller and, and Enrico Fermi and, and all of these people were, were European. And I'm not saying that we didn't have our own homegrown talent, you know, E.O. Lawrence and so on and so forth. We certainly did. But uh, nonetheless, however you slice it, the Manhattan Project, in a certain sense, was an amazing feat of engineering oh, yeah. in the short period of time that we had to do it. So if you factor in the fact that we've been dealing probably with Manhattan-sized projects, if not bigger, since at least the, the mid-1950s, in America's case, in the Nazis' case, since at least 1933, if not before, I happen to think that you could make a case that the Bell Project was begun in its very infant steps uh, and beginnings under the Weimar Republic. Yeah. So, you know, this is an awfully long time. Uh, with the Russians and, and Dr. Kozarev, you have something that, again, is underway in the mid-50s. Uh, the same with the British, the same with the French. So you have nations with large budgets, with uh, certainly a technological facility, that have been pursuing this stuff for about 60 years. So theoretically, there is no question in my mind, Georgian, none, that when we are looking at these rockets, we are looking at a public consumption technology. Yeah. That there is something off the books oh, that far outclasses the performance of these things and that may and probably does have an interplanetary capability of some sort, however rudimentary it may be. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that somebody on this planet has this stuff. So that makes the possibility of moon bases possible. Yes. Uh, because if you don't have to log a few few tons of stuff on clumsy chemical rockets that take days to get there and, you know, can literally levitate it to the moon and be back for lunch, uh, yeah, there's no doubt that, that somebody would have constructed bases there with this stuff. Uh, is there something on Mars? Well, <laughs> 
ever since the Soviets first began getting serious about sending robotical probes, and then shortly afterwards NASA to, to Mars, Mars is the one planet that has this abominable track record of probes that, for whatever reason, yeah. seem to fail. Yeah, or disappear. Or disappear. Yeah. Uh, or in the case of the little lunar or, or Mars rover, rover robot, I told you the story about, you know, this thing's solar panels were getting covered with dust and it was interfering with its efficiency. Right. And then all of a sudden it shut down. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know the story, NASA didn't know why. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it turned itself back on. And it's all clean. And it's all clean. <laughs> I it's love like, that story. Yeah, it's like, you know, a little Martian came along with his bottle of Windex and, and did us a nice little favor, yeah. cleaned off our little robot for us. You know? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Like you say, that certainly seems to indicate somebody's up there. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, you have You have the whole, uh, to me, still creepy Alternative 3 hoax that, you know, this East Anglia television in Great Britain put out in 1977. Yeah. You know? And, I, again, you know, I, this this is a documentary I watch, you know, maybe once every two months just because it's so nutty. Yeah. Uh, but the whole thesis is that you've had a group of people on Earth at a high level of collusion between the Soviets and the United States, and, you know, that would assume somebody else you know, acting as the go-between the two, taking a bunch of these scientists, hijacking them, and shipping them off <laughs> to yeah. secret bases on the moon and Mars in order, basically, to, to get the heck off of this planet before things get sky, you know, get blown sky high for whatever reason yeah. and, and continue a nucleus of humanity elsewhere. So, you know, it's kind of the, the alternative three scenario is kind of the reverse of my cosmic war scenario because, you know, in that scenario I have things blowing themselves to pieces everywhere else and whoever's left comes here. Yeah. <laughs> and so the alternative three scenario is, is the reverse. We're going to blow ourselves to pieces here and we better have somebody left somewhere. You know, and so Mars offers itself as, as the logical place that you would go. Well, probably uh, to underground. Well, underground and, yeah. and so on and so forth. But uh, the whole problem with space, and I think Richard is right here, that there is a some sort of covert shooting war that's yeah. going on up there that no one is wanting to talk about. And maybe that's why they are um, in certain places on certain days, uh, the skies are just filled with uh, artificial clouds, chemtrails. Well, it may be. Who knows? Yeah. Um, the whole business with that comet that exploded a few years ago and the whole business of the two satellites colliding. Um, yeah. And now, you know, again, I don't want to steal Richard's thunder. I'm waiting for him desperately to finish this paper. <laughs> but there's just a whole lot of things, strange things, uh, going on with Saturn. Um, yes. It, it, to me, this may be yet another possible source for the panic that we see being exhibited by the Anglo-American elite. Yeah. Because on the one hand, 
if they or some group that they are allied with has their hands on a genuinely practical interplanetary technology. And let's face the facts, folks. Rockets are not a practical interplanetary technology. No fooling. Uh, if someone has their hands on this technology and has put bases out there, yeah. then the last thing you want are the Chinese, Indians, Russians, Japanese, and Europeans going to the moon and finding that out. Right. And in fact, I believe probably the Japanese probably already have. I think that may be a hidden reason that we're seeing the political upheavals in, in Japan and, and the Orient uh, in China that we are. Right. Because I think the Japanese probably would have shared what they found with at least the Russians, possibly the Chinese, maybe even the Europeans. Because here, Europe is another space player that we forget about. But there is a paper on Hoagland's website called Like a Diamond in the Sky. I think I've mentioned this before in one of the sessions. People should, after listening to this, go read that paper. Because it's all about what the Europeans photographed when they sent a mission out to photograph an asteroid. I saw that picture. That's amazing. It is stunning. Yes. It is clearly artificial. Yes. But what's really the interesting question is, how and why did the European Space Agency know to photograph that? Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Who told them to point their camera in that direction? That can't be an accident. No, of course not. Of course not. No. But that's just not the way space missions work. Of course it's not an accident. It's no more an accident than landing Apollo 11 on the 25th anniversary of the bomb plot against Adolf Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was that, a little message. That was a little, yeah, that was a teensy weensy little message. <laughs> uh, you know, it, of course it's not an accident. You, you just don't plan space missions to, you know, to be at certain places and certain times because it takes months to get them there. Right. So everything has to be precisely coordinated. So, yeah, the, the Anglo-American elite has to be panicked because everybody else wants to go up there and find, figure out exactly what we've been hiding from them all these years. I think, uh, I think Richard and, and uh, Mike Barra, his co-author, are exactly right on, on that score. But the other thing is, is if we've got all of this stuff, you know, sl satellites slamming into each other, comets yeah. that blow up, you know, millions of miles out there. Yeah. Uh, this is somebody sending a signal that we've got some pretty sophisticated technology and looky what we can do with it. Yes. This uh, kind of uh, reminiscent of uh, the Twin Towers. Well, yeah, this is the other thing. Um, when you talk about technology. Well, yeah, that is definitely a technology at work there, and yeah. it isn't, it is not. I'm sorry, uh, Alex Jones, I'm sorry, Stephen Jones, this is not demolitions. No, it isn't. This is not nanothermite. No. This is not controlled nukes. Uh, the, the idea that you vaporize two 500,000 ton buildings. Vaporize. Underline that word, folks. Yeah. Vaporize. 
you know, the fact that you do this, if it were controlled demolitions doing it, you would have literally had to pack <laughs> that building with C4 sufficient to the task. And you'd have that building scattered everywhere on top well, of that, everything. Well, yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you, the, the, it's just not a workable theory. I'm sorry. It, it may sound like they're talking complete sense, but what they're really talking about is complete nonsense. To do that, you have to have a very sophisticated uh, directed energy technology uh, that that is sufficient to do that sort of thing. And uh, this is the reason that privately I've maintained with so many people and, and with you that we are looking at an operation within, within an, operation an operation within an operation. Yes. Because, you know, I accept the general argument or premise of, of the 9-11 truthers that there was a rogue element within not necessarily even the American government, but just the American elite that saw that it had to project American power into the Middle East to secure the energy supplies there yeah. for the West. Okay? Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, it was just a cold, brutal, realpolitik calculation. But in all honesty, friends, in my opinion, airplanes slamming into those buildings would have been politically sufficient to be able to do that. You're right. Okay? So by knowing of this operation and allowing it to happen, we have the operation itself. That's your first operation. That's your first surface level. The deeper operation, the second operation, are those elements within the elite that know it is going to happen and allow it to happen for precisely that political goal. Yeah. All right? But what I don't think they either wanted to happen or were even aware was going to happen was when those buildings came down. Yeah. That, I think, was a genuine surprise to them. And it was someone else's display of a very powerful, very sophisticated energy technology. And it was a demonstration and a message to them, to that element within our elite, that we've got this stuff. So at this point, our elite is, if my scenario is correct, take it with a grain of salt. It's a, it's a chain of speculation. But if that scenario is correct, our elite then has to move into the Middle East because the message is we've got something you don't and you are still committed to an energy physics that you have to secure your energy supply. Yeah. So in other words, in a certain sense, our, our military forces are pinned there now. It's an old classic chess move. Yes. So, you know, and to, the reason I say it was an op within an op within an op, that there is a third hidden player with their hands on this type of technology is because if you look at what the tin, Twin Towers were, they are symbolic in two senses, and both of those senses are as symbols of the Anglo-American corporate elite. Yes. Okay? The first sense that they're symbolic is an esoteric sense because what the towers are are the twin Masonic pillars, Joaquin and Boaz. Okay? Yes, absolutely. So in other words, you have a strike at what represents the hidden esoteric power 
that has always been associated with the Anglo-American power and corporate elite, namely masonry. Yeah. And the second thing that they're symbol of, symbols of are precisely Wall Street. In other words, the, the financial power of the Anglo-American elite. So by striking at those two towers in the way that they were struck yeah. with this very sophisticated technology is, in my estimation, uh, if my scenario is true, it is someone else firing the opening shot yeah. in a covert war and sending a clear message to that power elite that someone else has their hands on some very sophisticated technology too and are willing to use it to strike at that elite. Joseph, would the Israelis have that technology? They would, but I doubt very, very much that they would use it in that way, especially at, at uh, their principal benefactor, because that doing something like that always runs the risk that you would find out. Yeah. And if it were ever to be made public, Israel's support in this country would evaporate. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, it, it, it would be absolutely too risky for them to do anything of the sort. Uh, and and uh, quite frankly, you know, dubious as I think some of their policies and politicians are in yeah. that country, yeah. I don't think that they're that cold-blooded, quite frankly, at least not to Americans. So I rule out Israel as the deep player here. Um, I, I don't think it was Israel. Um, I don't think it was Russia. In fact, I do think that the deep player is some independent group. Yeah, they don't even have a country. They don't even have yeah. a country. I think it's an independent group. See, those are the people I think live on the moon. <laughs> well, it could, you know, this is this is why... This whole NASA thing that they're doing in October strikes me as very suspicious yeah. of slamming those things into yeah. the south pole of the moon. Mm -hmm. Well, that would be a logical place for a base, number one, yeah. uh, because it's close to what water there is on the moon, and it's in a position where it's going to have the requisite sunlight and so on yeah. 24 hours a day. So, you know, I find this whole NASA thing to be very, very dubious and suspicious from any number of standpoints. But, you know, whoever the third player is, you're right. I don't think it's anybody with a country that one can strike back at. Yeah, this you, is what has yeah. the elite, in my opinion, so panicked. Yeah, you and can't I think, put your finger, you can't point a finger at anybody because right. these people like you say they, they they are they have no allegiance to any country well they have allegiances uh, but they move around yeah yeah and yeah. and change their base of operations but the other part of what I'm trying to get at here is I think that this financial meltdown is a part of this wider scenario I think that uh -huh. was kind of stage two yes to let the anglo-american elite know that they are no longer calling all the shots well, they, you know, they don't need to hurt all of us little people. I mean, uh, if they want to hurt the elite, that's one thing, but leave the the, the little people out of it. Well, I, I feel that way about any country. You know, if, the, if these SOBs want to fight with each other, let them go at it, but leave the little people alone.
Yeah, well, I would agree with you. You don't get any argument from me, and I suspect you wouldn't get any argument from anybody else. Yeah. But, um, no, I think I think all of these these three things, in my reading of the situation, and I grant you, George Ann, what I'm doing is is it's not entirely pure speculation because I do have reasons for maintaining this op within an op within an op scenario. I've just never. I know. Yeah, I know you know, but I've just never publicly talked about what they are. Yeah. Uh, but I do think you have to look at this, uh, what appears to be a kind of a covert space war going on upstairs. Yes. I think you have to tie it in with this financial meltdown that's happening and with the, the not necessarily all of the 9-11 strikes, but just the Trade Center event. Uh, I think you have to tie those things, things together. And once you do, then you have a clear indicator that there is a, a so to speak, a third force present. Yes. That does not represent the 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 uh, Western elite, and it certainly does not represent the the Oriental or Eastern or Russo Chinese or whatever you want to call that elite. Yeah. I think that there's a third force in play, and that has everybody sort of spooked. Right. Right. Now, historically, the only people with the money. The organization, the ideology, and the clear interest in that type of technology that fills all those bills is this Nazi International. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that is that group. Yeah. I'm saying that a certain amount of the evidence certainly points in that direction. But there are other groups that could also have been responsible that would have the money, the technology, and the will and ideology to do something like that. Yeah. Could this rogue group mm -hmm. that are loose on the planet, mm -hmm. Joseph, are they are they people, if we can call them people, that just in recent history came together and formed this group, or would they be? Um, a group that have come from the days of Babylon? Oh, boy. Well, oh, boy, that's a Pandora's box. Um, in my opinion, and I've said it before, at the end of that cosmic war, you had essentially two groups going underground. Right to ensure the survival of the science of that civilization. And we'll call them the good guys and the bad guys, essentially. Yeah. Uh, because I think the good guys took the lesson of that war and decided that the only way to avoid that thing in the, in the long-term future was to spread around that knowledge as much as possible so that when the time came, that any technology based upon that science could be democratized as quickly as possible. Okay? Okay. And then you have another group struggling to reacquire the technology to claim or reassert the hegemony that it once gave them. Okay? Uh -huh. Those would be the bad guys. Yeah. Uh, have those groups been around since then? In my opinion, yes. Wow. 
and the reason why I say that is it is a clear element within the esoteric tradition itself that you have constantly the assertion uh, within almost any tradition that you turn to that there is a white, so-called white brotherhood and a so-called black brotherhood. Yeah. Uh, this is, I, I think, uh, I think this whole tradition, this whole idea, is a legacy of that war and of the collapse of that civilization. Yeah. Um, is there a direct traceable link with these things? That depends on what you mean by traceable. Okay. There is, in my opinion, a clear case that can be made that you have a conceptual continuity since ancient times yeah. of these ideas. Clearly, that is true. Um, is there an institutional continuity since those times? That gets a little dodgier because what you're dealing with when you look at the question in that way is you're dealing with, for all intents and purposes, secret societies that arise and then disappear. Right. But what is interesting is that when they disappear, they usually morph into something else. So in other words, you have Templars morphing into Freemasons. Yeah. Uh, you have Bavarian Illuminati morphing into Grand Orient Masonry and so on and so forth. You have those types of transformations taking place when you examine that avenue of esoteric history. When you pursue it back from the Middle Ages into classical times, that's where it begins to get difficult because you're not dealing with institutions as much as you are with little knots and groups of people, or if you want to use the academic term, philosophical schools. Okay. okay? Yeah. So I think I think you can argue that case, but it is it is difficult, and there has really not been any, in my opinion, really scholarly attempt to do that. Well, maybe they think it wouldn't be theologically acceptable to do it. Well, no, I don't think it has anything to do with that, because there are certainly scholars in the alternative field that are aware of this history. I think what's really setting anyone, preventing anyone from doing that, is that the amount of material that you would have to do to use to make that case is overwhelming. Yes. And additionally, the people that know that material is there know that the case can be made, but it boils down to simple human laziness. To be able to sit down and do that would be a multi-volume study. It would take, oh, yeah. it would take years to do. It would be a footnoting nightmare. You know, oh, yeah. you, you would have to consult, uh, various libraries of esoterica in, in Europe and, and uh, in, in the Middle East and, and the Far East to be able to do it and do it in the detail that it would require. But from my own research in these books, there's no doubt in my mind that we are dealing with at least some form of institutional continuity. Now, the third type of continuity is the most interesting the most palpable and the hardest to document. Okay. And that is personal continuity. In other words, can you trace the influence of this person and his group on that person and that group from ancient times up to modern ones? Yeah. Okay. That's the kind of continuity I think everyone is really after 
because if you prove that, then you have proven the existence of an ages-old conspiracy or conspiracies. Okay. Yes. Now, I think I've, I have, in fact, hinted at the way to go about doing that in Babylon's banksters. And again, I don't lay out the case. I know that the case can be made, but it would re have required, you know, expanding that book into several books to do it. But I do lay out the outline of how to go about doing it. Yeah. Because once you see what the outline is, then there is a, a clear-cut case that can be made for that kind of personal continuity. So yes, I think all, all three types of continuity are in play. There's a continuity of ideas, there's a continuity of institutions, and then there's a continuity of personnel. Mm -hmm. uh, I think all three cases can be made. Uh, I've certainly been making the continuity of ideas connection yes. in all of these books. Okay? Absolutely. I have been hinting at the continuity of groups in some of the Nazi books and in the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, and I'll, I'll take the veil off in, in Babylon's Banksters as to what the continuity is. But again, uh, to argue that case would be an enormous, enormous task. Uh, it, it really is going to require uh, someone who is really an adept in, in medieval and Renaissance and classical studies. Yes. And that is familiar with just almost every conceivable back alley and niche and, and rivulet of, of sources that are, are there, certainly. But, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to be familiar with just the most arcane types of things and, and libraries and so on yeah. to do that. Yeah. Oh. And I am to a limited extent, but certainly not to the extent that making that kind of scholarly case would require. Well, we know something is uh, not right. <laughs> no, it's not. You know, and uh, it, it it has to blow up sooner or later. And um, I think we're watching that is in the process. Am I right? Well, I think it's in the process. I think, I think that you're looking at, uh, in a certain sense, you're looking at the Babylonian elite coming unglued. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, think, I think you're looking at one of those particular factions that's been in continuous existence kind of losing its grip on things. Um, it, it, the technology is, is exceeding their abilities to manipulate. Yes. Uh, it is outstripping their ability to keep pace with it. And as it does so, it brings more and more people into awareness of their playbook, which, you know, in the yeah. millennia hasn't really changed. And that's the other problem, is the playbook is so transparent, if you know what it is, once you see it, yeah. then you are not going to be inclined to, to join groups like that. Exactly. Uh, so they're kind of even running out of good recruits, so to speak. Well, you know, we've got, um, you know, this institute in Rockville, Maryland, where, I mean, they have the genetics of everything and just about everybody mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And they're very interested in 
blood. Yes. Um, I mean, you know, and I, like going through an airport and these things that see through you, mm-hmm. jokingly, in the past I've said, well, <laughs> you know, they're looking for people with no bones. Mm-hmm. That could be true. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm looking at, at so many things, Joseph, that are just, you know, I don't think they're really interested in looking for weapons. They you think are, they're looking for a different species? Um Something very unique, yeah. Yeah, that could very well be. Yeah. That could very well be, and and I hadn't considered that. But, you know, given, given and, and let me be clear here, we're dealing with people in these elites that at the very top levels take all of this ancient lore very seriously. Yeah. Uh, and I know that may seem an absurdity to many people that are listening to this, uh, and all I can all I can do is say read some of the alternative literature and I think you'll you know read the better stuff and I think you'll see that this is in fact the case read Peter Lavenda's uh, books for example um, or or scholars like that that have been tracking various aspects of this huge huge story and doing so with a considerable degree of of, uh, scholarly research and analytical brilliance Uh, if you if you track the story in that way, then I think eventually you will be led to the conclusion that there are those in very high positions of power that are very hidden from public view. Oh, absolutely. That have this view. So the the real point is not necessarily that that view is objectively true. What is significant for the purposes of human action and policy is that there are people who believe it to be true. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of adapting uh, Richard Hoagland and Mike Barra's argument that they put out in Dark Mission, yeah. that one does not necessarily have to accept their thesis as objectively true, but merely accept the fact that there are people who believed the things that they're outlined and acted upon them. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's very clear that, that in NASA's case, there were those groups that believed certain things to be true and acted upon them, whether or not they objectively were or not and objectively I think that they are because I think that that it is a fairly sound case now that um, at least some of the planetary bodies in the solar system we are dealing with artifacts yes yes absolutely well you know we know that they've been looking for artifacts uh, in the Middle East, there, you know, they they've been looking for artifacts all ev- over, everywhere. Yeah. What they are, what you know, I think, for terrestrial purposes, and even to a certain extent for celestial ones, they've found what they're looking for. Now, what they're really trying to do is figure out what does it mean. Yeah. Why is this stuff where it is? Why do we have these monuments on Earth? in the weirdest locations. Yeah. Uh, you know, why is there this grid pattern that these people seemed to have built on or been aware of? What yeah. does it mean? Uh, why do we have these strange alignments of things on the moon and Mars? Right. Why do we have a moon of Saturn orbiting that planet in such a way that you can you can... Uh, divide numbers 
into the parameters of its orbit using the Sumerian mathematical system, and you come out with whole numbers. Yeah. In other words, it was placed there yeah. by someone using that mathematical system. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Well, you know, and it's interesting, too, Joseph. I mean, even at the university level, there's, there's a set of physics that is never taught. Oh, I know. Tell me about it. Never. There, I, you know, I have been I have been over and over telling people when I speak publicly at conferences. Yes. I've 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 made all of these books revolve around the fact that there is a public consumption physics and there is an off the books physics. Right. And the public consumption physics is the so-called standard model of physics, standard model of quantum mechanics. And then uh, the standard uh, models incorporating general relativity and all the deductions, you know, Big Bang, dark matter, dark energy, yeah. stars as big encased chained up hydrogen bombs and, and the whole bailiwick. Well, you know, that's the public consumption physics model. Yeah. It has not, please note, other than producing atom bombs and hydrogen bombs and nuclear reactors, it has not produced any really sound energy alternative. Exactly. Okay? Exactly. It is, in other words, a physics that has led to a technological dead end. Yeah, including their uh, cures for cancer. Including their cures for cancer. Yeah, the, what do they call it? They give them chemotherapy and that Yeah, the cure, is, the, cure is, is the cure is worse than the disease. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it has led, yes, there's, there's, a, there's a public consumption medicine and there's an off-of-the-books medicine. Exactly. And, you you know, you need only think of, of physicians like Royal Raymond Reif or Alain Priore in France yes. or even what the Soviets were doing in, in the Soviet Union. You mm -hmm. need only look at that stuff to figure out that someone is suppressing a whole lot of stuff they don't want us to know about. Exactly, yes. Uh, so, yeah, there is a whole off-the-books science. And in, in the case of physics, and it's not as if these people go out hiding things. It's the best way to hide things, I keep telling people, is right out right in the, the open. Front. Yeah. yeah. It, it, you, you just simply have to learn where to dig for it, exactly. to find it. Uh, you know, I've, uh, beginning way back in the Cosmic War, I've been telling people where to start digging in terms of finding out where physics started to go nutso. And that goes all the way back to James Clark Maxwell, back in the middle of the 19th century. So in other words, yes. there has been a deliberate effort underway since at least that time to misdirect physics into certain channels where it's going to lead to technological dead ends. Right. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing the physics component, again, is if you go to Nazi Germany, what's the first thing the Nazis did with regards to physics? They said... Jewish physics, meaning relativity, mm -hmm. is not an acceptable avenue for the dedicated Aryan physicists, okay? And they even had some major misgivings concerning quantum mechanics, all right? Yeah. Now, every academic will point to that and tell you that's why Nazi Germany lost the race for the atom bomb and did a lot of kooky things. Well, yeah, that's why Nazi Germany did a lot of kooky things. I don't think they happened to lose the race for the atom bomb as I've made clear uh, in numerous sessions before. But while we can use that to account for their kookiness and even the brutality of some of the experiments, particularly in the medical realm, that they did, 
I think we're missing the bigger clue that it provides us. Because this meant that there were physicists in Nazi Germany thinking utterly outside the box. Absolutely. And this is why you have this engineering explosion in that tiny little country in the space of 12 years that you did. Uh, they, they were putting things together in a certain peculiar way that their allied counterparts weren't doing, not so much because they were not capable of doing so. That's not the point. The point is that they were not seeing how to do it because they were thinking in a different paradigm. So, you know, change the paradigm, you change the physics, change the physics, you change the technology that results. So uh, this is why I think you have this huge effort that was designed to misdirect attention from actual Nazi scientific accomplishment after the war. God forbid that any of this should get out and be democratized. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, they get to Mars and uh, somebody walks up and says, well, you know, there has always been, it's interesting that you mention that, there has always been this rumor, yes. and I have never paid much attention to it, that the Nazis at the end of the war with some Japanese uh, as kind of uh, uh, kamikaze comrades in the yeah. endeavor, uh, that they mounted an expedition to the moon and then Mars. Okay, there has always, and, but the reason I've discounted that is that these, the people putting out that story are the same people putting out stories of actual real field propulsion Nazi flying saucers called Hanabu and Vril and all of this uh, happy claptrap for which there is no real evidence. Yeah. Okay? There is evidence for Nazi flying saucers. Don't get me wrong here, folks. Right. But the saucers that the Nazis were tinkering around with were jet propelled. They were, they were, uh, some very sophisticated turbine things, okay? Yes. Uh, and I won't even get into what I really want to talk about in I that know. regard. But I know. Anyway. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they were doing all of this advanced research. But my point in, in, in even talking about the Bell Project is to show people that the one project for which there is some serious documentation that the Nazis were tinkering with advanced field propulsion ideas mm -hmm. is the Bell Project. And the reason I say that it's the only solid basis we have is because the details of the story of the Bell are, are detailed enough and solid enough that we can reconstruct a plausible theoretical physics model to explain what they might have been up to, okay? Mm. We cannot do that in the case of any of these other Nazi flying saucers that the neo-Nazis have been talking about since the end of the war. Yeah. We cannot sit down and and put the pieces together and connect the dots like I've done in this in, in this Nazi series of books. So what we're dealing with then with the Bell is a prototype project in field propulsion, among other things. Yeah. And that was not developed by the end of the war to the point that you could put someone inside the thing and fly it around. 
because, as you remember, it tended to kill people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you got too close to it, much less be inside of it. You know? Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's the big rub, you know. But, yeah. Uh, well, Joseph, with well, the, you know, with the um, rapidity with which this technology has moved forward, Mm-hmm. The this this group um, that we talk about that really has no country, if you will, right. they could not afford to be Earth-based. Well, exactly. They have to have a base of operations. Yeah, and and it right. would be discovered here with satellite. With now, it would yes. You know, this this is this is a, a crucial and an excellent observation. Because, you know, since the advent of, of real uh, spy satellite technology in the 1960s, yeah. having a base of operations here on Earth is increasingly risky. It's yeah. not that you can't get away with doing it, but you would have to have uh, sophisticated camouflaging techniques. You would have to have now uh, anti-radar tomography techniques. You would have to have uh, some sort of way to defend yourself against any potential intervention. Yeah. So, yeah, the logical place to put something, if you have really genuinely sophisticated technology, is off-world. Right. And the two places that suggest themselves the most readily to anyone wanting to attempt to do that would be the moon for its proximity and Mars for the ability to at least do some rudimentary types of of terraforming to, to be able to survive. Yeah, and they would need uh, people. They would need people. To do that. They would need uh, lots of money. Yeah, but they would need people for their backs, you know, yeah, labor. They would, they would need labor. They would yeah. need uh, the scientific talent to do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there would be a whole lot of things you'd have to put into place as a covert operation down here to get something like that up there, there. possible. Yeah. Right. And that's, again, you know, going back to your Achtun, you know, uh, people showing up on Mars and they're mated with people in SS uniforms. Well, I've found it very interesting that this mythology, if you look at it in another sense, if you look at it in another light, you have essentially two different groups making that argument. Okay. You have the neo-Nazis. Which I find very interesting that you have that group making that claim. Yeah. Okay. And then the other group, of course, is the the nutty directors of East Anglia Television in Great Britain with Alternative Three. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know. You know. But when you re- when you view Alternative Three, it is done well enough to leave you scratching your head that even though you know you've just watched this huge, typically British April Fool's joke, Mm -hmm. it was done well enough to leave you scratching your head, Mm -hmm. thinking, my gosh, for a joke, this really put a lot of pieces together. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, long before, long before... Richard Hoagland or I or Mike Barra or anybody else ever came along and said, hmm, we're dealing with a secret space program here. Yeah. That's what it looks like. Long before that happened, you had East Anglia Television <laughs> saying yeah. basically that. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, let's look at what 
I outlined in the SS Brotherhood of the Bell, to go back to that for a moment. Okay. In Chapter 3 of that book, which I entitle, uh, From Russia with Love, <laughs> uh, I go into this idea of the two-track space program. And if you look at Russian and American um, robotic probe launches during the 1960s, Right. And view them together. What's really interesting, it, and, and no one, to my knowledge, other than a couple of British researchers have noticed this and pointed this out, is the Russians would launch a series, and then they'd stop. Then we'd launch a series, and then we'd stop. Yes. And then the Russians would launch a series, and they'd stop, so that we could launch another series. So what it's looking like to the public is, okay, these two countries are in this neck-and-neck -neck space race. Right. But when you sit down and put them together, what it's looking like is that there's a whole lot of coordination going on An effort. between Cape Canaveral and the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Uh -huh. You're right, Joseph. You are uh, right. I think okay. you hit the nail on the okay, head. Okay, but let's go further. Oh. Let's go further because I don't leave it there in the SS Brotherhood of the Bell. Right. Okay. To do that coordination, to, to coordinate two supposedly rival space programs, okay, what do you have to have? You have to have an organization that has sufficient penetration into both countries to pull that off. Well, it now, hang on. Yeah. Historically, in the record, who is that? who are the only ones that we know of historically in the record that have their people in the Soviet Union working on rockets and in the United States working on rockets. Who? Come on, you know who. No. Come on, say it. Oh, dear. Say it. Oh. Nazis. Yes. Nazis. Yes. This is the only organization with penetration into both space programs. Okay. This is the, oh, hang on. This is the only organization with intelligence penetration into both nations. Exactly. Yes. This and is the only entity, in other words, that exists that could pull off something like that. And they can do it also through the Vatican. And there's another one. Yep. And, you know, there are an awful lot of very good Russian scientists that work at NASA. Of course there are. You know, and a lot of uh, people don't realize that, you know. And, and they're how did they get here? Yeah, and they're supposed to be our enemy, you know. <laughs> oh, gee. Well, you see, this is my point. This oh. is my argument for the third force and for the fact that they are somehow connected to yes. this Nazi organization is because, historically, in the record, this is the only organization that's there that has the potential, and please underline that word, that has the potential, potential to pull something like that off. Yeah. Now, I've just gotten, as part of the research for the book that whose title will go unmentioned and whose subject will go unmentioned. Yeah, it better go unmentioned. Yeah, it's going to because I don't want to let that one out of the bag before it's at the trigger because that, I guarantee you this book is going to upset a lot of people. Good. Uh, well, you know who it's going to upset. But you anyway. Bet I know. Oh. Uh, I, I have just come into possession 
just in the last two days, it's good that we're having this interview today because I wouldn't have been a privy to this information two days ago. Yeah. But I can tell you now, without any shadow of a doubt, that there is enough information now to corroborate that scenario that I've just laid out for you yes. of international coordination between the two space uh, superpowers of the day yeah. based in some sort of Nazi international. I can, I can guarantee you that. And the reason why is... If we look at these, so oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not tipping the beans about anything that I'm writing about. Okay. Okay. If we look at these paperclip scientists that we brought over here to this country after World War II to work on our rockets and our jet planes and all of this happy stuff that we have all of these Nazis working on, you know, we bring them to Alabama, we bring them to Texas, we bring them to Wright Patterson in Ohio, and you know, just all over the country. Right. I can tell you two very interesting things that just made my jaw drop when I read them. The degree of penetration of these people into American aerospace and defense industry was absolutely staggering. I mean, they got their fingers into almost every black project's pie that existed in this country after the war. Yeah. And here's the bad news. We did not keep these people under a whole heck of a lot of counterintelligence surveillance. Right, right. They were somehow buying Mercedes cars. They know that these people were getting money from somewhere. Right. And in here's a real interesting curveball. In those early V-2 launches that we were firing off in Texas and New Mexico and all over the Southwest, right. the Germans were so in control of that that they were sending up V-2s with cameras. Uh -huh. Now listen carefully. Okay. When the nose cone would fall back to Earth on parachutes, of course, these cameras were clicking away. Mm-hmm. But surprise, when we went looking for the cameras, they were gone. Hmm. They were gone. Missing. Missing. Now, when you put all of this together, the lack of surveillance, the fact that they're buying cars with money coming from somewhere we don't know where. And those are expensive cars. And those are expensive cars any way you slice it. Yep. The fact that they are penetrating all of these sensitive projects and corporations and research bureaus and institutions, that tells me that whatever we were learning, someone else was learning. Yes. And probably the center of that spider's web is good old Borman down there in Argentina. In other words, an independent group of Nazis. Yeah. That are loaded to the gills. Mm -hmm. uh, they've probably got a lot on a lot of different people. Oh, yeah. You know? Uh, oh, yeah. They can manipulate uh, governments. Oh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Let's remember the collapse of, of uh, Salvador Allende in Chile in, in 1972-73. Yeah. Well, we were told at the time that that was a CIA IT&T operation. 
Yeah. True. <laughs> but it was also a Colonia Dignidad operation. Oh, yeah, and boy, what a place that was. Oh, and what a wonderful group of people. Because the feet on the ground that toppled that government were not from the CIA and from IT&T. They were, so to speak, the handlers. The feet on the ground were Nazis. Yeah. Well, and, and, did and that means, oh, but there's your blackmail, Georgian. Yeah. Yeah. They did a lot to little children that was just unspeakable. Children, and let's not forget Stressner in Paraguay. Yeah, yeah. You know, this man was deep into the drug trade. Yes. He was deep into hiding all of these Nazis. Oh, yeah. Okay? So there's your Nazi international drug trade connection. Where's your source of funding? Right there. And it's global. And it's global. Yeah. And I'm not saying they're the only ones involved with it. All I'm saying is they are involved. Yeah. They are the ones training these death squads. They are the ones training the security for these, these drug lords down there. Yeah. And even, in some cases, providing it and getting their little cut of the skim. Oh, yeah. Oh, Joseph. So, yeah, you've got, yeah. You've got a, a criminal ideo ideology that is tailor-made to be this type of third force. And, you know, when we're dealing with Nazis, we're dealing with people that are essentially nuts. Yeah. They are nutty enough to try and pull off something like this. They are nutty enough to try and have secret bases on the moon and Mars. Yeah, and be and be successful at doing it. And be successful at doing it. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Because when you have, you know, just look at the Third Reich. You have all of these projects being brought to fruition on the back of millions of slave labor oh, yeah. victims. Yeah. So they will not hesitate at all whatsoever to have any sort of human scruple or ethic or morality in bringing any of this to fruition, none whatsoever. Well, you know, when you and I have talked, you said something to me that was very important, and I will never forget it, and that is that there is, we have to distinguish, there is a distinction between nature and, a per, and person. Oh, yes, absolutely. And That's a theological distinction that few people really know how to yeah. to put into practice. And when we talk about these uh, godless, uh, oh, I, I, it's hard to even know what to call them. <laughs> I mean, Nazi doesn't even cover it, Joseph. I mean, what is their connection with God? What is, you know, is it is it just that these people? Is it bloodline? Is it what is it that drives no. these people? No, 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 no. Okay. None of the above. Ultimately, it's something I've told you privately, and I'll say it publicly. Okay. At the very top of these power elites, I believe that the way they rationalize their actions against the rest of humanity is because they have a certain knowledge of personal human immortality. Now, I want people to hear that. Say it again, Joseph. Okay. At the very top of these power elites, yeah. I believe they rationalize their cruelty and barbarity by an absolutely certain personal knowledge of human personal immortality. Now, when I say knowledge, I don't mean faith. Right. I don't mean that they have a conviction. 
Right. I mean that they have pressed the physics to the point yes. that they have come to the conclusion. And I've, this is one reason I have been emphasizing this aspect of this, uh, this off-the-book physics right. so very frequently in the Cosmic War and Dirty Secret series is because, again, I go back to what I've said over and over and over, and I don't think anybody has clued in on what the significance of it is. Yeah. If you have this off-the-books esoteric physics yeah. and read it in that way, and again, I put that appendix in that Giza Death Star Destroyed book for a reason, technical as it is, if you have a view that the physical medium is an information-creating medium, right. once any specific set of information is created in that medium, it is never lost. Wow. And the reason why is, is you always have the potential, so to speak, to back-engineer any specific set, or here's the word, template. Mm-hmm if you have the physics to do it. Oh, my God. So what these people have, I believe, is they have developed the theoretical aspect of this to the point that they long ago came to that conclusion. What is alchemy? Alchemy, in a certain sense, is nothing but... Transmutation. No, 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 listen... Let me speak. Okay. Alchemy is, in a certain sense, nothing but the process of back-engineering any template from that medium. That's what I say in the Philosopher's Stone. I use that term, back-engineering, of the medium and the descent of any set of information from it. Yes. Very specifically, and for this purpose, is to point out that once you've come to that conclusion then the implication of it is is that any individual human person is a set, so to speak, of information. Right. Okay? And the way they then rationalize their crimes is, okay, killing these people here in this life doesn't put an end to them. Right. So we can go ahead and do it. We're just taking them out of their physical body. Yeah. And if you read certain New Age literature, this is the way they look at it. Oh. You can read Alice Bailey and find yeah. this. You can read uh, Marilyn Ferguson, The Aquarian Con uh, Conspiracy, okay. and find little indications of that type of thinking. Okay? Well, the reason is, is that there's an underlying physics to it. Now, what they have missed is something very significant. What they have missed in their uh, moral thinking is the old uh, hermetic adage, as above, so below. So below, yes. As below, so above. Right. Okay? There is something to this connection between this four-space world, or this 4D world, and higher dimensions and the connection between the two yes. that we do not yet understand and I don't believe they do either okay mm -hmm. but the ancient hermetic view and it's even a view that was picked up 
very significantly by the early Christian fathers is that mankind is a microcosm. Somehow, the human being holds it all together. Yes. It is a keystone in the arch, so to speak. Okay? This is the flaw in the thinking of these people. Yes. Uh, this is... In other words, let me put it to you differently. The Nazi rationalization for the use of slave labor to accomplish all of these scientific feats was that it was in the national security interest that there was no other way to achieve these scientific feats quickly without the use of human experimentation. Oh, my God. Okay? Yeah. Now, at that juncture, when you've made that rationalization, you have lost faith, not only in God, but in the way that he has put the universe together. Together, yes. Because I believe you could have accomplished all of those things without having to do that. In fact, by not doing so, you would have figured out a way to accomplish those things without harming another human being. And that's, if you want to view it in esoteric terms, that is the way of the true adept. Yeah, oh yeah. Do no harm. Yeah. Well, what does it mean, Joseph, in the Gospels where it says what is bound on earth is bound in heaven? Well, that's a different thing. Okay. Um, because that, you know, in the Orthodox Catholic tradition, which I belong to, that is not a statement given to the whole church. That is a statement given to certain people with certain types of authority within the church. Right. Namely bishops. Yeah. You know, the power to bind and loose. Yeah. Uh, it is not, and here I part company uh, clearly and dramatically with any Protestant or evangelical reading of that passage. Because, again, I do not believe that everyone who is a believer, so to speak, has the right to go out and hang up the shingle and teach everybody else or has that authority to bind and loose in that way. Well, I know that uh, the occult use that. Well, of course they and, do. And, you know, an occultist, an accomplished one, will say, you know, you have to learn how to bind evil before you can do good. Right. And that's, that's, a, that's a big statement. Well, of course it is. And I'm not saying that, to a certain extent, an individual human being does not have that authority. But in that context that you raise it, it is an ecclesiastical uh, authority that okay. is being referred to, not a, not a authority, an anthropological thing. It's not an anthropological doctrine, although there are, like I say, there are, uh, it is part of... of uh, Protestant and evangelical theological anthropology to say yeah. that. But, you know, uh, it is, in a certain sense, that statement is another expression of that old hermetic axiom, as above, so, so below. below. Yeah. Right. So, in that sense, there is a truth to it. But, you know, I, 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 I cannot insist 
long enough to people, and I probably will do this to my dying day and be misunderstood by every Bible-thumping evangelical Protestant out there. And, again, I speak very directly, and, and perhaps it will sound very harshly. Well, God bless you for your directness. Well, the problem is, with those dear people, is that they want to set themselves up as, almost every last one of them, as some sort of authority or teacher. Yeah. And they're not. You know, this is the whole, this is the whole real squabble, so to speak, between any form of Catholic Christianity and any form of Protestant Christianity. Right. Because, you know, and, and tragically, it's, it's endemic to, to Western Christianity. You know, you have one pope versus many. Yes. Uh, and and as both, both poles of that dialectic are so very foreign to orthodoxy, it's not even funny. I, I, I cannot communicate adequately in one session the vast, deep, Difference oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in worldviews and 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 thinking between orthodoxy and any form, I mean any form of Western Christianity, particularly the American homegrown evangelical uh, believers' baptism version of it. Yeah, uh, that whole thing has. Itself, such a to me, uh, to me. Well, it, it's dis, it, it is self-destructed uh, the church in this. Well, country. it has self yes, it has self-destructed the church. Yeah. Uh, it has basically given rise to so much confusion because literally anyone can be a Bible teacher in that system. Yeah. And they all have their own little idiosyncrasies that distinguish them from everyone else. You know, there is no common, there's no common intellectual world view in that system that can ever emerge, and therefore there is no common principle of action yeah. that can ever emerge from that system. And that's why Christianity in, in this country particularly is so eviscerated and so weak. Yes, yes you're right. Uh, you know, uh, they're all waiting for the rapture and, <laughs> you know, to take them out of all the bad things to come. Uh and it just, to me, it's just uh, totally foreign to, to anything that you the, that you encounter in, in, in Holy Orthodoxy. It's just completely foreign. Well, Joseph, going back to um, the fact that these people uh, with physics mm -hmm. believe that by alleviating uh, people, large groups of people. Mm -hmm. For, you know, of their uh, physical body, uh, torturing them, killing them, uh, starving them, mm -hmm. uh, experimenting on mm -hmm. them. Um, what do they expect will be their the consequences for them doing that? Well, I don't think that they expect that there are any because here's the oh. other here's the other here's the other. Um, offshoot of their way of having rationalized this physics. Okay. And please pay very close attention. In this model of physics, it is very easy to assume and to misassume yes. that the physical medium is God. And it is not. Okay, say that again. I will say it again. Okay. In this model of physics, it is very easy to misassume that the physical medium 
is God. Okay. Okay? And therefore, it is very easy to slip into the idea. Of, it's very easy to slip into two ideas, actually. Number one is that you have a spiritual science here. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that there is a, a sacred science that is Christian and biblical. Yes. Okay? That is sheer idolatry because God is not the physical medium. Okay. Okay? He's absolutely, totally above it in every sense. The other temptation has always been to pantheism. And in that system, morality just becomes a system of physics. It becomes a technique of manipulation. And therefore, there is ultimately no... Uh, no real basis in love. Yes. And therefore, there is no practice of compassion. Now, when you add to that idea, the, uh, we'll just come right out and call it Luciferian uh, wing within esotericism or the occult. Okay. When you add to that idea the fact that you have an evil master who is really bringing you all this goodness and light. And to satisfy him, you know, every now and then you make sacrifices. Yeah. Well, there's your shedding of blood. Right. Right. There is the ultimate irrationality that is behind all of this seeming rationality with all of this human experimentation from the Nazis to uh, the Rockefeller Foundation and its eugenics projects in the 1930s and so on and so forth. That's the rationale. There, those things are continuing. Well, of course they're continuing yeah. because it's all coming out of the same worldview. Yeah. And it's, again, it is a worldview, I want to stress again, that this physics of the medium is so easily mistaken to be the Christian God. And the reason is is that this physics of the medium entered the doctrine of the Christian doctrine of God in the West. And it did so at a specific time and place in history by a specific teacher. It became more or less the groundwork or basis on which the Western Church formulated its version of the doctrine of the Trinity and all the reactions there, too. So, in other words, you know, I'm sitting very firmly in Constantinople or Moscow, take your pick, and looking at Western Christianity and all of these philosophical and scientific developments as being more or less of a piece, because there are certain common assumptions undergirding them all. And I give your listeners a warning You cannot deal with this stuff. Please hear me. You cannot deal with this stuff with any spiritual understanding if you are coming from within any component of that Western tradition. Because you will not know the pitfalls and dangers you will simply repeat the same old stuff over and over and over and over. Yeah, and history's full of it. History's full of it, and there are 
there are people taking my writings and trying to do exactly the first thing that I warned as a consequence. You cannot do it. Yeah. It cannot be done. You will misunderstand in a deep and profound and terrible way what I've said if you attempt that first sort of quasi-Christian attempt to uh, make all this the basis for some sort of theological outlook. Yeah. Ultimately, it will lead you to some very, very bad places. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's true. I'm not saying that as far as the physics of it goes that that physics isn't real. It certainly is. But there are spiritual temptations to it. Oh, yeah. And I, I hope I'm making myself very clear. As clear as I can in, in a short interview. Well, Joseph, with, you know, we know that um, throughout history, uh, you know, more than 2,000 years ago, um, there were people mm -hmm. practicing, and you know, I've mentioned this in other audio files, mm -hmm. they were practicing these uh, occultish, uh, paganistic, religion mm -hmm. uh, and they worked yes you know of course they did you know it seems like uh, because the physics works yeah but at some point they stopped working right for and, and why was that well any number of reasons it depends on where you look was it because of Jesus Christ was it you know what happened well, Christianity certainly had a lot to do with it. Uh, yeah. And it's, well, wait a minute. And it seems like a lot of these things have been sequestered in the hands of just a few people today. Well, what happened to it was that, again, you have two different ways that uh, Christianity responded to it and that it responded to Christianity. Yeah. In the West, because of the fact that this physical medium, certain properties of it, became the foundation for the Western doctrine of God, yeah. it was, in a certain sense, a competing system. So the esoteric had literally to go underground or to associate itself with positions in, with people in positions of power at the very pinnacle, uh -oh. both within the church and within monarchical Europe. Yeah. Okay, and that's exactly what happened. It went both underground and associated itself with people in positions of power. Okay? Oh, okay. In the East, because you had the clear understanding within the Byzantine Empire that none of this stuff was anything more than philosophy, it was never misunderstood to be any, having anything to do with theology at all. Yeah. So people just kind of continued to do it rather openly. And with no real conflict, because there was already in place this provision, this understanding, yeah. that this stuff was nothing more than physics, but certainly nothing less. But it certainly had nothing to do whatsoever with spirituality or with Christian doctrine or anything like that. Yeah. And, you know, if, you, if you're not understanding what I'm getting at here, let's look at what you learn in the textbooks happened in the medieval West. 
they tell you in the textbooks that the medieval West rediscovered Aristotle, and as a result, you had the rise of theological scholasticism with Albert the Great and Thomas Aquinas and so on and so forth. And the reason you had that rise was because everything in Christian doctrine had previously been couched in terms of Platonic or Neoplatonic philosophy, and then Aristotle comes along, well, you've got to redo everything. Okay? Well, that's essentially what happened. All right? But in the East, in the Byzantine Empire, you never lost Aristotle. You continued to read him. Okay. And you continued to read him in the original Greek. And the West goes after Plato. And the West went, well, but you're missing my point. Okay. When the West rediscovers Aristotle, they're rediscovering him from Arab translations from the Greek, which they then translate into Latin. Oh my. <laughs> so in other words, you know, in the East you, ne- you never quit reading Aristotle, but you didn't think he had anything to do with theology. Yeah. And by the same token, you never really quit reading Plato either. But you didn't make the mistake of thinking he had anything to do with theology. So you have a completely different attitude to these ancient sources. And by the same token, you're not going out and burning them either. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. It's a different culture. In the West you had exactly what I just described happened. Yes. Theology got wedded to philosophy and, and therefore to a view of physics. And then when Aristotle's rediscovered, you have to redo a whole lot of theology. And then when you discover, hey, this stuff is more about philosophy and physics anyway, then you throw theology out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then you get people coming along now that rediscover all this and say, oh, looky here, this is, this is a biblical science. This is a biblical uh, thing that we can play with. No, it isn't. It is totally, this stuff comes totally from the Hermetic tradition, from ancient Egypt, pure and simple. Yeah. And I'll, I'll go further. If you read the Giza Death Star and that appendix carefully, and no one really does, I mention the fact that The whole thing was exposed by the Greek fathers. After all, they knew these philosophers. They knew what they said. They they speak Greek. They grew up with it. (laughs) And they said, well, this is nothing but stuff dealing with sensory things. In other words, what they were telling you was, this is nothing but physics. This isn't what we're talking about. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, those people that are misinterpreting me in that fashion, I can't tell you how profoundly off-base you are. And you can have all the Bible teachers you want. You can be a member of a nice Christian church with a real good Bible pastor teaching you. And you're putting out this stuff, and you are wrong. True. True. With all of this, Joseph, Mm -hmm. um, uh, I was going to say, do you think there's any Christians on the moon? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. It just... If the third force turns out to be some renegade group of, of Christians, then I, I would say that, you know, uh, probably not. But yeah, probably not. But if there are, I would fear that they probably are from uh, some sort of, you know, Western Christian sect. You know? Yeah. Oh. You know, if they're planting the, the papal flag up there, then, oh, you know, oh my gosh. I'd say that we're in a bit of trouble. Yeah, but, a lot of trouble. You know, or uh, the so-called Christian flag that you see in a lot of churches. But, you know, I, 
if that, I, I would I would relax if it were the patriarch of Moscow, <laughs> but yeah. otherwise I don't think I don't think I'm going to be relaxing too much if it's a bunch of Christians, you know, that have their hands on their, this technology. Oh my! Well, um, you know, we're looking for this false uh, fulfillment scenario. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's Christians that will be doing it, <laughs> definitely. Well, uh, that's a whole series of, of talks in itself, but... Um, we'll get to it. <laughs> maybe. Okay. Um, in order to make that scenario work, yeah. you have to have, by the nature of the case, you have to have people in clerical positions, regardless of what church you're talking about. Right. Or, you know, non-church, as I like to call some of these little independent things. Yeah. Because they're not really tied to anything else. They just set up, you know, put out their shingle, and we're a church, uh, you know, with no historical connection to anything whatsoever. To me, that's just nonsense. But in any case, um, you have to have complicit in the false fulfillment scenario people in the churches that have, number one, been indoctrinated with a certain type of theology. Yeah. And number two, are indoctrinating others in order to make that work. Wow. Uh, so in any false fulfillment scenario, you have to have complicit people at some point. Point, yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned something to me that's very interesting. Uh, you said that, you know, we've talked about this, about the body being a transducer mm -hmm. that draws the person out of the ether? Well, yeah, there are... I don't want to get too far into that because it's an aspect of all of this that I'm thinking about. Okay. And there are certain little, very, very technical things within patristic theology that kind of even support that view. Uh-huh. Um, but I, the reason I hesitate getting into it is because I don't want to be mistaken for teaching any doctrine of, of transmigration of the souls or, you right. know, to call it by the common term, reincarnation. Um, but if you look at DNA, there is a, a growing body of evidence that suggests that DNA of any sort it acts as a transducer. Mm -hmm. But human DNA in particular seems to have some... Uh, connection to the human person, him or herself. Now, I want to say one more thing. The error, there's, there's an, an Orthodox saint by the name of St. John of Damascus. Yes. Who wrote a book called On the Orthodox Faith back in the 8th century. Uh -huh. And he said that the error of all the heresies is the same in that they say that nature and person are the same. In other words, at some point he's telling you that the common thing that all heresies have is that at some point they have identified nature and person in their theological thinking. And again, without holding a theology seminar here to, yeah. to show what the doctrines are he's talking about and how they do this, because that would literally take me months. Yes, I you know. know. I'd have to teach theology to people. In fact, most people out there are Western Christians, so they'd have to unlearn everything they think they know yeah. and relearn 
what is actually going on before a certain Western teacher comes along and messes it all up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, but in saying transducer, I don't want people out there saying, "Oh, oh, Farrell's saying that nature and person are identical." No, I'm not. I'm, I'm acutely aware of of the danger of that. Yes. Uh, I'm thinking in terms of a, a of a specific technical term in theology called enipostaton, which means that every nature is in person. In other words, it exists in an individuation. There is no such thing as an abstract nature. And by the same token, every individuation is an essence. In other words, it exists in something that it has in common with other individuations. Okay? Okay. Now, person is more than mere individuation. I want to make that very clear. Uh, personhood, in, in the theological sense, is an absolutely irreducible, concrete uniqueness that can say, I, mm-hmm. that is not analogous to any other such entity that can say, I. Yes. That, that literally is about the, the least clumsy way of putting it. Okay. Um, and even to a certain extent, there are elements of that doctrine that transcend the idea of the ego. Okay, that's another important point that I need to throw in there. But, okay. Uh, by transducer, I mean that it appears to some researchers now that human DNA, in its uniqueness, Every human individual has an absolutely unique genetic composition. Right. And it appears to be irrepeatable. And if that's the case, then it also appears somehow to connect to this higher dimensional entity mm-hmm. that we call the person. Yes. It connects directly to, it mediates it in a certain sense. Let's put it that way. It mediates it. It's a gate for it, all right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, call it into existence, but neither is it called into existence by it. It comes into existence at the same time as the other. Let's put it that way. Okay. It's, 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 it's a very deep mystery. And to, to say transducer, I'm simply trying to say that there is more to the physical body than we yet even suspect meets the eye, even with all of our theology, with all of our science, with all of our philosophy. Uh, We're getting to discovering some things now in science that are pointing to this hyperdimensional reality that we can scarcely imagine exists. Wow. Uh, If you read in the physics of consciousness literature that's been coming out with increasing uh, increasing frequency in the last 20 years, they talk increasingly of the fact that the human mind itself appears to be non-local, that, that human consciousness itself appears to be non-local. That's fascinating. It's, it's very fascinating. In yeah. other words, it does not exist inside the body at all. Right. It is connected to the body. Yeah. Intimately. And at death, it's severed from the body, but it somehow goes on. But in, in 
what they're talking about now with this idea of non-locality is that somehow the brain transduces that consciousness into the body, which I find a very interesting idea. It's got all sorts of good and nasty theological implications, both. Um, And and again, you know, as a theologian, I would say that well, there are certain overtones of transducianism here and all of this other stuff that, you know, theologians would be aware of that no one else would bother about, you know. But, yeah. Um, uh, the, the implications are, are very deep and very profound. I don't think, and the reason I'm so hesitant to talk any more about it, is I don't right. think any theologian is really uh, adequately prepared to deal in a way that is simultaneously doctrinally sound okay and also takes serious consideration of what these avenues of research are beginning to disclose um, I don't you know and I, I certainly include myself in that in that yeah. caveat because I don't think that uh, Theologians have really done their homework and kept up as much as they should with developments in science. I we have to, we have to we have yeah. to you know and I, I've mentioned other problems in connection with certain passages of the Old Testament previously in these lectures that we yeah. have to contend with and do so extremely carefully. And I don't think that there's any theologians really adequately prepared. I'm not one of those theologians that's going to stick my head in the sand. Right. like an ostrich, and say, well, we just don't want to think about these things uh, and hope they go away yeah. and, you know, stick <laughs> doggedly to our formulas and things like that. Yeah. But by the same token, I'm not one of those uh, theologians that's going to go headlong and say we ought to embrace all of this stuff and figure out what it means in terms of our theology either. I think we need to go slowly and methodically. Yes, I Which is why I've always hesitated to to uh, discuss these types of issues openly anywhere in my books or anywhere else. Yeah. You know, I allude to them. I, I'm trying to wake up people in the Christian community that are there. Yeah. And again, the reason I'm so cautious is to expose, again, the the spiritual pride and presumption of those who claim their conversion experience and have their Bibles and Bible verses all lined up and are wanting to make quick and easy theology out of this physics of the medium and mistake it for God, as I have heard them explicitly do. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I'm I'm not trying to put myself in by the same token to sound like I'm some sort of know-it-all guru or anything remotely of the sort. I'm just simply saying I do have a little experience in, in this field, and there are so many spiritual difficulties with it that I think it would literally take a monk or a nun who spent all of his or her life praying and, and studying these things in a deeply spiritual way that yes. would be able to to deal with these questions in the way that they really need to be dealt with and there are very precious few of those around there are oh, a few yeah. there are a few charlatans and, and mountebanks and yeah. i can name some but i won't 
particularly within the Orthodox tradition, that have done that or attempted to. But you know, they they simply are, are kind of Orthodox versions of fundamentalists. I, I don't think they've dealt very deeply with with these things. Well, it is very very deep, and Joseph, you know, it, it, we are learning so much. And to stop and think that uh, this. Um, uh, other group, if you will, that mm -hmm. has no country, are what maybe fifty, hundred years ahead of us in their science. It could very well be that they are are that far ahead, and that's an interesting observation that you make there. Because I've recently, in the research for this book, that I won't mention what the subject or title is, I recently run across the assertion that well, these things can't possibly be terrestrial because uh, the science and and, and technology for it simply isn't there. Well, I say oh. balderdash. That's an assumption right. about the nature of human scientific progress that right. simply is not true. Uh, you know, uh, the whole point of, of my having done all of these books is to show that humanity has achieved phenomenal things yes. in science and done so in a very short period of time. Uh, you know, the means of getting there have been abominable and barbaric and inhuman and immoral oh, yes. and, and ungodly in most cases. But nonetheless, the actual accomplishments are still there. You know, they cannot be denied. So, uh, to there, me... Joseph, are there consequences for, for evil? I mean... Of course there are. Oh, good. Of course there good. are. The whole... This is the other sneaky thing about this physics of the medium is that... The, the morality, in a certain sense, is built right into it. Yeah. Doing bad things comes back usually to bite you. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, the Hindus call it the law of karma. Uh, the Christian version is, is casting your bread on the waters, you know, and hopefully it's good bread that you're casting on the waters. But, you know, the, the, the basic morality is, is that when you do bad things, you know, yeah. To people that don't deserve it, or just do bad things, period, yeah. or omit. And here's the real, here's the real thing that people overlook so much, is if you overlook to do good, if you omit to do it. Oh, good point. Yeah. That comes back to bite you. Yeah, if you can help somebody and you don't. <laughs> yeah, that that precisely so, precisely yeah. so. You know, this is. This is the throwaway people mentality that has crept into our culture, and particularly from the churches. You and, know, the so, and, and also... The so-called tough love. Uh, yeah, and the nonsense. culture of, well, I, I want it for free. Or I want yeah. it for free, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, God says, love your neighbor. He doesn't say, love your neighbor, but only if it's easy and convenient for you. Right. right. No, that's... I, ha I have seen personally and have seen others... Yeah. Buy into that that cliche of tough love and throwing people out in the name of it, but the real tough love yeah. is loving people that are tough to love. When people need the most loving, they're they're hard to love. Yeah. yeah. When they when they most need it. Yes. Is when it's tough to love them, and that's the real tough love is to stand by the people that everybody else has thrown away and yeah. does not love. That's the tough love. That's right. Throwing people away um, for any reason is not tough love. And yeah. I, that puts me at odds, I know, with most of the preachers and most of the churches and most of the Bible beaters. But, you know, uh, 
when I beat when I beat my Bible, I usually cite books of the Bible that are not in those people's Bibles because <laughs> yeah. yeah. they don't like to deal with those books. Yeah. But uh, you know, uh, it's it's uh, it's it's an insidious culture that we've gotten into oh, yeah. because it is a culture ultimately that is not based on love. That's right. Genuine love, deep love, cross-bearing love, oh. uh, and it's stand it, by you love. Stand by you love. Yeah, and it is eating us alive because it is allowing this evil that is embodied in these elites to yeah. thrive and fester and flourish and flourish. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Oh. It's much easier to turn over a loved one to the government or to a nursing home or to what have you. Yeah. You know, government has replaced God. Government has become the big idol. And this is not what we are called to do. And I'm not saying government doesn't, don't get me wrong, all you conservatives leaping up and down for joy that I just said that because here's the curveball. Government does have a social responsibility to the public good. That's right. So, underline you know, you can you, you know, underline public good, and if that puts me on the liberal side of the fence, well, too bad. <laughs> because, I'm there with you. <laughs> because, I, you know, the other, the other thing that this lack of love in our culture has done is it has reduced all human policy, motivation, and action into a system of dialectics. Yes. You know, we have the dialectic of liberal and conservative, Democrat versus Republican. Uh, yeah. You know, all of this uh, old versus young, male versus female, and yeah. all of this balkanization of Western culture in general and American society in particular, that these politicians have only enlarged their own purses and power as a result from all of this thinking. That's right. You know, it's not any of this. It's not black versus white. It's not rich versus poor. It's not male versus female. It's not old versus young. Uh, you know, all of the wonderful dialectics we hear about in, in the media, it's none of that. Because that only can thrive and function when you have forgotten the fundamental human calling, which is to love. That's right. Absolutely true. That's what makes us in the image of God. And you can find, I don't care what tradition, what philosophy, what society, they all, from China to India to Sumer to Egypt to... Indonesia to Fiji, they all have at some very deep core yeah. this idea of the golden rule. You True. do to others as you would have them do to you. That's right. They all have that rule, and there's a reason for it. Well, the Nazis don't believe it. No, of course not. You know, the Nazis are the mirror image of the church. The church is an extraterritorial thing, too. It has no country. Yeah. And the Nazis are the mirror image of that. They are the perversion of it. They have abandoned that whole ethic. They have abandoned that whole culture. They have abandoned that whole morality. They have done unspeakable things in the name of their science. Yeah. Uh, they've done unspeakable things in the name of the acquisition of power. And, you know, it is, it's almost as if we are looking at the exact opposite of the ideal of, of what Christianity is supposed to be. And, of course, you know, Christian history is full of people forgetting that idea and doing terrible, bad things to people. That's right. You know, and every religion is full of that history. Everybody's, as I like to say, everybody has their Rasputins. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, uh, 
you know, there's there's just no end to the potential for human good, and there's no end for the potential of human evil. So, you know, we're put here, I think, to make a basic choice, and that is, are we going to do good or are we going to do evil? Joseph, hmm. you know, we're watching our country being stolen oh, yes. out from under us. We're watching uh, gleeful people loot our country yes. at every level. Is it right for people to fight to keep their country? Well, there has always been in in historical patristic Christianity, there has always been the assumed right of self-defense. Yes. Um, you don't have to look very long or far to find the people in, in the ancient church that will tell you that. Yes. And in fact, within orthodoxy, up until the, the fall of the Tsar in, in Russia, there was a, a petition in our litanies that went, God save the Tsar and protect our Christ-loving armies. Yeah. You know, and that had been prayed in Orthodox churches since, uh, you know, the days of the Byzantine Empire. So, you know, that has always been an assumption that we have the right of self-defense, uh, that we as being in the image and likeness of God, right. have the right to fight godless tyranny. And and people who would take and substitute uh, in our hearts another God. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. The you know that was the whole that was the whole uh, struggle between the Roman Empire and the Church is that the Church simply would not burn incense to Caesar yeah. and recognize the inherent spiritual genius of Roman administration, which was supposedly <laughs> represented by Caesar. Yeah. You know, well, the same, you know, in a certain sense, spiritually, with the rise of the modern secular state, we are in a very similar circumstance. Yes, that's true. Um, you know, official tolerance of all religions can quickly become intolerance for some. Yes. You know, we are witnessing to a certain extent this phenomenon happen in our culture towards Muslims right now. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, in Muslim countries, the reverse. You, you certainly have an intolerance to Jews and, and to Christians and Buddhists and Hindus. And a lot of this is being contrived. Oh, of course it is. You know? Of course it is. Of course. The elite can only maintain power by managing conflict. That is their, you know, that is the, the technique that they have used for millennia oh, yeah. to maintain power is to create and manage conflict. Well, like, you know, uh, they wanted to do certain things, so they set uh, the blacks against the whites. And the, yeah, the you blacks know? against the whites. Or now, the, now, yeah. the, now the indigenous American population versus the illegal aliens, which they're bringing into the country. Yeah, just you, for just, that purpose. Just for conflict, yeah, yeah. just for conflict, yeah. yeah. That's, that's all it's about. Uh, and, you know, the real shock is when the human race wakes up and realizes we don't have to kill each other. Right. To have genuine progress and genuine peace, that will be the end of the elite. <laughs> oh, what a glorious day that will be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Inevitably, it will happen. It has to happen, yes. Well, it has to happen simply for human survival. Yeah. 
I mean, the idea of, of killing someone because they have black skin. It's or crazy. because, you know, they light a seven-candled menorah. It just is, is, is to me, it's just, yeah, it's insanity. It's irrationality in the extreme. Yeah. It is, it is I, I, you know, I was raised in South Dakota where there were very few black people, and I didn't really care one way or the other when I finally met them. You know? Yeah. <laughs> because it, it, it's so foreign to... to uh, I, I just can't think like that, I, and I don't know how people that do are able to. You know, just, you know I look at whole countries like China, oh, yeah. and my heart goes out to the people that have been tortured, oh, yeah. brutalized, starved by governments. It, it, oh, yeah. I, I look at this, it, it's the governments that cause so much oh, yeah. heartache and trouble and death. Oh, yeah. Just look at just look what oh. this government had, uh, did to the Indians, you know, oh, yeah. in, in in this continent. Uh, it's it's barbaric and unspeakable. It's just as ungodly and and uh, uh, foul as anything the Nazis ever did. Yeah. And you know we're big hypocrites if we think otherwise. Yeah. But uh, you know we won't we won't get to a place where we can spiritually handle and believe me it's coming fast yeah. the physics is coming fast yes. Oh, yes and and as i've been arguing there are groups of people that already have their hands on it yeah but it's going to affect the rest of us sooner or later it's going to become a, as much a part of our everyday life as desktop computers and a-bombs have been in the last you know 20 to 50 years uh, it's, it's going to be as commonplace and the only way that we are going to survive as a species is if we wake up and realize that every human being that we meet or encounter in our lives regardless of how unlovable they may be yes. are worthy of love and are worthy of prayer and, you know, it doesn't matter uh, if it is an inconvenience to us. Now, that's not saying that there are not some people who are evil, but that doesn't mean you stop praying for them. Yeah, exactly. That's an act of love. Yeah. So, you know, we have to wake up. We, we just simply have to wake up. You know, we, we watched the elites put into power in Russia and Germany, two absolutely genocidal, murderous, barbaric regimes and yes. ideologies. Yes. And those ideologies ended up raping and murdering the people of those countries, perverting their their innate ethnic gifts. Right. You know, the Germans with their work ethic and their loyalty and their willingness to to subsume the individual for the greater good of of the nation yeah. was perverted and twisted into a monstrous oh, yes. barbarism yeah. and in russia they took a people with a long spiritual history and stubbornness and determination and and perverted that into the soviet system yeah. and murdered literally millions of people Kulaks, peasants, you know, farmers that were simply trying to grow food to feed everybody else. Yeah. Uh, and we watched these elites do this 
So, you know, in addition to hanging a few Germans at Nuremberg, we probably should have hung a few Wall Street bankers right along with them. I agree. You know, if we're going, if we're going to be consistent about it. So, you know, that's, uh, that's, uh, why the chickens are coming home to roost in countries like Russia. You know, they've watched these elites work. They know who's behind it, ultimately. Well, you know, I look at what's happening in this country, and it's like they're, they're, they're formulating a whole bunch of little Soviet states now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, the Soviet state of Oklahoma, the Soviet state of Texas. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. Well, it, it, they have to do that. They have to keep, in order to make their grand North American Union come off, they have to have a more localized center of control. Yeah. So to a certain extent, you know, Washington, D.C. has to be bypassed for these for these elites planning all this in order for them to be able to maintain any sort of uh, control. I, I personally, they may get away with it for a few years, but ultimately it'll crack apart. And when it does, it will drag them down with them. Yep, I've noticed people out here buying a lot of rope, Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> and we have lots of trees. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I know. They they are not, you know... The... Well, now, I, these people, they're the same ones that would have the technology to go to Mars to, to set up bases on the moon. Some of them are. I, there are people, and that's an excellent question. There are people who are arguing that let's let's call them the Rockefeller wing okay. of this Anglo-American corporate elite. And I don't necessarily mean the Rockefeller family. I just simply mean the uh, constellation of institutions and networks and so on right. that have been associated with that family. I'm not saying that David Rockefeller is the evil spider in the web <laughs> pulling all these strings. Because um, frankly, I think he's too old and probably a bit too senile to be pulling all these trees. Yeah. But anyway, um, there are people arguing that that particular faction has their hands on this technology and has it to the pitch of development that we've been talking about. Personally, I don't doubt that they have their hands on some of it. Yeah. But I don't think that they have been successful in bringing it to the pitch of development of having bases on Mars, Moon, or even to the pitch of development of, of being able to bring down Twin Towers. And the reason I say that is because, again, if you look at the track record of the institutions that they have put into place to foster and further their own power, by the nature of the case, they bring into their system, into their circle, people who are more or less of the same mind as they are. And yeah. that includes a certain paradigm of science. Yeah. So, in other words, they have, to a certain extent, so busily and so long fostered what I call public consumption physics, yeah. that those are the only people that ultimately get into that circle. Huh. So they have been unable to bring that technology and physics to that pitch of development, in my opinion. Okay. In other words, they have been unable to think out of the box enough to do it. They have, they have so funded in-the-box science for so long yeah. that they literally have to import anyone from 
somewhere else to be able to do that for them. And any time you're dealing with mercenaries, I've said it once, I'll say it again, you are always running the risk of, of funding a project and having someone steal all of its secrets right out from under you. Yeah. You know, that, that's just the way it is. Yeah. And uh, turn on you. And turn on you. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So I don't think, you know, I think they have some of it. I think they probably know pretty much everything there is to know about every black project in the American arsenal. Yeah. But by the same token, from what I have seen that is publicly known about those black projects, and believe me, I probably know a little more than people think I do, uh, I, I haven't seen anything that really represents out-of-the-box thinking. What it represents is taking conventional technology and pressing it to the utter limit that it can go. Yes. I don't see any really original thinking from these people. Well, maybe, you know, maybe um, they're out recruiting people, you know? Well, again, from where? Yeah. <laughs> from where? They have so encumbered Europe and yeah. North America and Latin America with this in-the-box physics. Yes. I mean, my word, look at poor Iran. Iran wants to have a bomb. Yeah. Well... Whoop de woo. As far as I'm concerned, that's as obsolete as the dodo bird. You're right. <laughs> you know. You're right. Uh, why tinker? Why, you know, come on, uh, whatever your name is, Musharraf, or, or I forget that nut's name. Yeah, me you know, too. But come on, you know, A bombs, hydrogen bombs, if you want something that'll really get everybody's attention, go after some of this torsion stuff. Go after some of this scalar stuff. Come on. And it's not as if they don't have science scientists that can see and, and do the physics, but they're probably unaware of it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, we have listeners in Iran, so well, I know. maybe I know. they won't be unaware of it now. Oh, gosh. Joseph, just many times, God bless you. For, you too, hon. Oh, thank you. Uh, for all this work, this research, and the love that you give to no, people so. through your writings. Oh, my gosh. Well, I hope so. I hope people understand that's the ultimate motivation. I'm not trying to dwell on the dark side for the purpose of dwelling on the dark side. I'm just trying to make right. people aware that that's there and, you know, wake up. Right. And uh, we don't have to go there. That's right. And we don't have to put up with these evil people and their evil schemes anymore. It's, you know, they've... They've led the world to the precipice of an absolute disaster. And why listen to them? Why, why participate in their conferences, in their trilateral commissions, yeah. in their councils on foreign relations, in their royal institutes of international affairs, any of it? Why bother with them? Cut them off. Absolutely. Don't, don't, don't play the game. Turn off CNN, turn off MSNBC, turn off Fox, quit your subscriptions to Time and the newspapers and all of this. Just let them go right to where they're already going. That's right. <laughs> uh, just, I think they're kind of going to hell as far as I can see. Well, they are. <laughs> you know. know. Um, and I mean that on a lot of different levels. <laughs> well, I understand. You know, so why, you know, why go along for the ride? Absolutely, Joseph. Good advice and a good point. <laughs> well, everybody, 
do go to GizaDeathStar.com. Please exercise that PayPal button there. And don't forget George Ann's donate button either, folks. It's not cheap with satellite links and so on. Yeah. It's not cheap. Thank you, Joseph. You're welcome. But, I, you know, everybody, this man gives all of us so much. And well, so do you. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's just, you know, people have this idea that the Internet, everything should be free. Um, if you don't help support things, they go away. Well, the thing that people don't realize, I don't think, either about Internet broadcasting or about writing books is that, at least on my end, I can't say what the business end of, of your uh, business is like, but I do know it has to be expensive. For me, and, yes. Oh, yeah, I know. Uh, I, I know it has, it has to be. I can tell you writing books that... Authors don't make money. You know, people probably think I'm living in in the lap of luxury with all these books and, and writing full time. Well, no, uh, I'm actually very poor. And uh, that makes two of us. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And you know, publishers are the ones that make money from books, right. not authors. You know, right. um, the only reason I write so much is is quite literally because it keeps food on my table and the roof over my head. And uh, I have to write quickly enough to be able to keep doing that. Otherwise, I quit writing, you know. And, and uh, Well, you've got a lot to give, Joseph. And well, yeah, I've got, got five books, you know, already yeah. mapped out, you yeah. know, down the line. So. Yeah. And what's coming up will just knock people for a loop. I, oh, I yeah, the both Babylon's Banksters and, and the other unmentionable one yeah. are going to set... Uh, Particularly the the one I'm working on now, I think it's going to uh, it, it's going to upset a really big apple cart, and uh, there's going to be a lot of people that aren't too happy with it. <laughs> well, there's a big apple cart that needs upsetting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is, there is, and uh, you know. But anyway, yes, work out George Ann's donate button and uh, keep her on the air and producing these these shows because. I like to listen to the other shows too, so you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying that selfishly. <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. Oh, so everybody, go there, GizaDeathStar.com. Use that PayPal button, and I mean it sincerely. Do that and pray for Dr. Joseph P. Farrell. Pray for him, for his safety, thank you, his health, and uh, that. He will have the means to continue. And, you know, a person's got to eat. They have to pay their light bill, their food, their, you know, the roof over their head. So, you know, (laughs) people, please get real. Nothing comes for free. Uh, Your health care for free, (laughs) you will be very sorry. Nothing is for free. No, that's for sure. Not when you have bankers issuing money that's yeah. debt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is it for tonight, and God bless you many times, Joseph Farrell. You too. Thank you. And this ends Part 7B, as in boy, of Dirty Secrets, Nazi International. And we uh, kind of got off on a lot of 
broad topics there, but uh, things interesting and things that we need to think about and consider. So with that, to everyone out there, everywhere on this planet, God bless you. Good night. Good night.